0: our text on this Easter morning as we hear from the Living God in His Word is Mark chapter 16 verses 1 to 8. But I'm going to begin with this proposition that without the resurrection The cross would mean nothing. Last Sunday, a group of readers led us through Mark's passion narrative. It started in chapter 14 and verse 1 and it ran for 119 verses to the end of chapter 15. This morning's reading, if you don't count the part that was also read last week at the end of chapter 15 is eight verses. 119 verses centered on the cross in Mark's gospel, exactly eight centered on the resurrection. But I say to you this morning that without the resurrection the cross would mean nothing. More than that, the teachings of Jesus would mean nothing. The works of Jesus would mean nothing. I guess other than that he was kind and acted in kind ways. Without the resurrection, there would be no salvation. The resurrection isn't the epilogue. It's the climax of the life of Jesus. As important as the cross is, the church hasn't ever met on Fridays, except for one Friday every year. The church has always met on Sundays because the church has always understood the priority of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the key to our resurrection too. Those who believe in Jesus Christ are promised to be raised from the dead as he was, physically, literally, bodily, into a resurrection form in which we'll live forever So we're going to be two Sundays on the subject of resurrection this week and next. So before we consider Mark's Gospel account this morning, if you would, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's to the right. It's page 902 in the Black Bibles. Some higher number in the large print through the Gospels, past, past Acts, past Romans, then 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, page 902. This is the Apostle Paul on the importance of the resurrection. And this is what I want us to hear at the start this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I want you to notice Paul's main emphasis there. Yes, of course, he mentions the cross. Yes, of course, he mentions the burial. But Paul's main emphasis is on the evidences of Christ's resurrection. Because the resurrection is the culminating event in the life of Jesus. In fact, it's the culminating event in divine redemption. It is the cornerstone of the gospel. Still in 1 Corinthians 15, if you go now to verse 14, looking there, listen to how Paul says this. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, Paul says, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God, that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Or to put it as we did earlier, Without the resurrection, the cross would mean nothing. Verse 18, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Paul says, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection is the source of eternal life for those who believe. And next week we'll consider some of the implications of the resurrection for our lives. But as we're turning now to Mark's account this morning, let me just complete this opening thought for you that I want to hang over these two weeks. Without the resurrection, the cross would mean nothing. But let me also put it positively and see if you agree. Because of the resurrection, the cross means everything. I would even say we celebrate the resurrection as making the cross meaningful. All of which is to say, brothers and sisters, if I may boil it down to this, we cannot separate the cross from the resurrection any more than we can separate the resurrection from the cross. And so it is that Mark like all the Gospel accounts, tells the story of Jesus' crucifixion. We heard it last week. But then follows it by the initial account of His resurrection. Or perhaps we should say, the initial account of those who discovered that He had been raised. You probably know that none of the Gospels provides a description of the resurrection itself. No one saw it no one could explain it. How it happened is frankly incomprehensible to us. That it happened is the critical matter for all four Gospel writers. And of all the four Gospels, as is usually the case, Mark's account is the shortest. Now, I do think, parenthetically, that the Gospel of Mark actually does end in verse 8, if you're curious about this. It's quite abrupt. And I know that verses 9 through 20 are there on the page, if you were looking there at the reading. But you'll note that the editors have put that reading from 9 to 20, all in brackets, double brackets, as you see at the beginning and end of that. Along with many scholars, I come to the conclusion that verses 9 through 20 I don't think are properly part of Mark's gospel. That's a topic for another time, but I'll just say it so you understand that I'm stopping at verse 8 intentionally. And what we're going to do now is look together at Mark's eight short verses. And it is obvious to do it, to say it, but I'll say it anyway that Mark's concern is not at this point to delve into the implications of the resurrection. Mark's concern is to give testimony to the fact that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. That it happened as he said it would. From the beginning Jesus had said this. Mark chapter 8 verse 31 And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, Mark tells us. Jesus repeatedly said this to his disciples. And every time in all the Gospels that Jesus identifies a period of time between his death and his resurrection, it's always three days. Therefore, Mark's main concern, and in a sense all the Gospels' concerns, is to show us that this is in fact what happened. And in Mark's account, we see the evidence of the resurrection along three lines. And this is not very original, I know. It's simply what's here, and many observe the same. We have the testimony of the empty tomb, number one. We have the testimony of the heavenly angels, number two. And then, though a little tricky to see it in Mark, we have the testimony of the eyewitnesses, number three. The empty tomb, the heavenly angels, and the eyewitnesses. It's the same in all the Gospels. If you think about it, then you have three types of testimony in the Gospel account testimony from historical fact, testimony from heavenly revelation and testimony from personal eyewitnesses. Mark wants to show that Jesus did what he said he would do and give evidence for it. And so we'll begin now with the testimony of the empty tomb. And verse one tells us that we are with the women now, it says, when the Sabbath was over. The Sabbath is Saturday, of course. Saturday is over now. And just to note, I mean we think of days as ending at midnight, but in the Jewish accounting the days would be marked at sundown. So actually at this point now we're more or less 12 hours into the day after the Sabbath at this point in Mark's Gospel. Meaning it's Sunday now. It's the third day. Jesus was in the grave on Friday. He was in the grave on Saturday. And he's been in the grave for some amount of time on Sunday. And it's early in the morning and so it's right on schedule. And Mark says, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. These were the women who had followed Jesus in Galilee. Mark 15 verse 41 says, When He was in Galilee, they followed Him and ministered to Him, and there were also many other women who came up with Him to Jerusalem. They'd been following Jesus everywhere. And Mark says they'd been ministering to Him. That's not something it ever says the disciples did. Only these women and angels are said to have ministered to Christ. We know that they'd been looking on at the cross. Verse 40 of chapter 15 tells us that. We're to understand that they had seen him his burial as well. And now it's Sunday morning and they come back. Why? Well, Mark says they bought spices that they might come and anoint him. These were women who'd been with Jesus for a couple of years Perhaps. They loved Him, they served Him, they worshipped Him, and now they're caught up in this horrific sadness. This wasn't just their friend. And they'd gone through the Sabbath day, you see, and they'd, they'd gotten up in the darkness of Sunday morning to come back. And what you should understand is that this is really the first opportunity they would have had. They couldn't go on the Sabbath. So they wait until just before dawn on the day after the Sabbath because that's all they could do. And they come and we can only imagine their questions, their fears, their anxieties, but they loved the Lord. So they're going to go back and they're going to do what family members would do, loving family members would do. They're going to go put spices on his body. And it's daybreak and the Gospels are interesting to read at this point. I mean, John says it was still dark. (laughs) at least when Mary Magdalene arrived. And according to John then, Mary Magdalene immediately ran away to tell Peter and John what she saw. Mark doesn't give us those details, but we do understand that it's just the time of sunrise now. And of course the Mount of Olives is on the eastern side of the city and it would have blocked the direct sunrise, but the light would have been coming around the Mount of Olives and Mark says that as the women arrive in verse 3, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They knew where the tomb was. They knew the stone had been rolled over it. They're wondering how they're going to remove it. And then verse 4 says, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large, Mark tells us. <laughs> this is a shock. And if you're, if you're asking, well, what then would they be concluding from this? Seeing the stone rolled away. Don't get too excited. <laughs> because I think probably the answer would be that they would have concluded what John tells us Mary Magdalene had concluded when she saw the same thing. Do you remember They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, she says. They've stolen the body. I mean, they were none of them expecting resurrection. We have to remember this. They came with spices that they went out and bought in order to anoint the dead Jesus. That's the point. And they find the stone rolled back. And Well, how'd that happen? Well, once again... Mark doesn't say that, right? But Matthew does. Matthew tells us how this happened in his Gospel in Matthew 28, verse 2. Actually, it's interesting in Matthew. At the end of 27 in Matthew, you find out that Pilate, in fact, had sent a guard of soldiers to secure the tomb on the Sabbath. The women probably wouldn't have known that. And then in Matthew 28, verse 2, we read, there was a great earthquake. I take it to be sometime in the night. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. That's how the stone got moved. And it's just a comment, but you know it wasn't moved to let Jesus out, right? I mean, it was was moved to let the women in. To let Peter and John in. To let us in. The guards became like dead men, Matthew says. They're, they're off the scene now. The women arrive. There's no soldiers there now. Verse 5 in our chapter says, they entered the tomb. They entered the, t- the tomb. So what I want to point out is that everything Mark's been building up to so far in chapter 16 is that the tomb's empty, brothers and sisters. All four Gospels make that point very directly, although each in their own way. The tomb was empty. The disciples didn't steal the body. They didn't even believe in a resurrection, so they sure didn't need to fake one just so that they might die for something that didn't happen. They'd all fled Jesus when He went to the cross, remember? Unlike the women. the Roman soldiers knew that they didn't steal the body. You read about their panic in other Gospels. The the women sure know they didn't take the body and all the physical facts make clear that the tomb is empty and everybody knows the body wasn't stolen. And in fact Matthew goes on to explain how the Sanhedrin is then bribing the soldiers with money to say that Jesus' disciples came to steal the body in the night while they were Sleeping on the job, presumably, right? (laughs) This is the first line of testimony that has to be dealt with one way or another. The tomb was empty. Which then brings us to the second testimony in Mark's account, and it's the testimony of the angel. Still in verse 5, Mark says, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Alarmed is the right word to translate. The verb means to be terrified. Not, mind you, in the sense that you fear for your life, but in the sense that there's something around that cannot be rationally comprehended. You can't get it. You can't grasp it. You can't explain it. There's something terrifying about being in that kind of a situation. And the angel then speaks in verse 6. He knows what they're working through. He says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. The angel says, See there. There's the moment of revelation. Literally the verb is in the passive voice. He has been raised. Which is significant. You heard Paul talk like that in 1 Corinthians 15 that we read just a minute ago. God raised Jesus. Peter preaches that at Pentecost. God raised Jesus from the dead. This is the word from God through the angels. He has been risen. The women aren't going to find Jesus there in the tomb? I think, it's always been my thought, that they don't find Jesus in the tomb because that would give the impression that Jesus had just come back to life somehow as a mortal, again to die someday, like Lazarus coming out of the tomb. It's not that. That's not the case. He is not here, the angel says. See the place where they laid him. This is the astonishing testimony of the angel in Mark. In other Gospels, it's two angels. Don't let that bother you. One angel, two angels. Maybe there was both. Maybe it was one angel first, then two angels. They might have said this a few different times. I mean, try to imagine these this group, these women going in and dealing with the reality of what they're seeing. I mean, it's not that hard to figure out that the different Gospels may get a couple of details differently in terms of how this is talked about. The point is, there was a historical reality of the empty tomb, now there's the divine revelation from the heavenly messengers who speak for God. He's risen. He's not here. Which then brings you to the third line of testimony in Mark and in the other Gospels too, the testimony of eyewitnesses. We see it commanded. The angels continue to talk in verse 7, or the angel here. They give the women a command, but go, the angel says. Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And just an aside, but why do you think Peter's singled out here? Well... I think it's because the last time we heard about Peter and Mark's Gospel, it wasn't a pretty scene, was it, last week? Peter, the one who had denied Jesus three times, tell Peter and the rest that He's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you'll see Him just as He told you Jesus had said that back in Mark 14, verse 28. We heard that last week as well. 1428, but after I am raised up, Jesus said, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus had told them that the angels tell the women to go tell them the same thing again. But if you know the other gospel accounts, you know, they didn't go. At least not yet. Because the disciples don't believe the women. (laughs) You've read that in the other Gospels. Peter and John do go running to the tomb. They wonder, but that night, Jesus appears in the upper room to them and to others while they're huddling there in fear. During that week, He'll appear to two on the road to Emmaus. According to 1 Corinthians 15, He appears to Peter, He appears to James. Eight days after the first appearance, He'll appear to them again. These appearances are in Jerusalem because he hasn't. they didn't go to Galilee yet. They will... But for now they are huddled around, they are trying to figure it out. They do go to Galilee. You can read about the appearances there in the other Gospels. Then according to Acts 1 you can read how Jesus spends 40 days with them, speaking to them of things pertaining to the Kingdom of God. We know that there is this massive eyewitness testimony to the risen Christ. We know that the astonishing wonder of the experience at the tomb will unfold into eyewitness accounts. We know the disciples will see Jesus, they'll eat with Jesus, they'll touch Jesus, they'll see his nail prints, they'll see the spear scar in his side. That's not where Mark goes. So for now, to follow where Mark takes us here at the end in verse eight, we're left in the moment of immediacy of the women's response as they flee. In verse 7, the angels tell them to go. In verse 8, it says they went, and not slowly. These women will be the first to give human testimony to the resurrection of the Christ. But Mark's emphasis is on their astonishment in that initial moment. I think there's something in that for us the wonder of this resurrection reality has to take shape in them. It must also with us. I mean, the empty tomb, the angelic message, this is not easy to grasp. Verse 8 says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone. Where well, they were afraid, and that's the end of Mark. Now, I think Mark's emphasis is on how they are initially responding to what they've just taken in. And I, I take my cues from some of the verbs here. The word astonishment in trembling and astonishment had seized them. It's not a verb, sorry. The word astonishment, it's ecstasis. It's, you hear it, ecstasy, right? It's as if they are detached from reality here. There's some kind of transcendent thing going on. They were afraid, Mark says. It's phobeo, where we get the idea of phobias, which don't entirely, they're somewhat irrational, they're they're fears, there's this sense in which what they are experiencing transcends reason, they cannot process what's going on, you see. We tend to use that word fear almost exclusively when we're anticipating something bad happening to us, we're afraid of something bad that will happen, that's not exactly the nuance here, I don't think, I think this is more this sense Of just being unable, of being unable to give a rational explanation for these realities that have just broken into their understanding. They're stunned. And so, initially, as they flee, they are in this condition of not being able to give reasons or explanations for what's going on. And that's the way Mark leaves it. And I like that. I think we can relate to that a bit. I mean, I've told several people in the last weeks, Easter Sunday is not the easiest Sunday to preach. How do you talk about this? Ah, yes, we know the women would give testimony to what they'd experienced. The other Gospels tell us that, but there's a lot going on internally here, right? It had to have taken some time for them to figure out what to say, how to react. Resurrection was not a category they knew how to think about. That's what I'm trying to get you to see this morning. And so Mark ends with this bewildering fear of it all, which makes some sense to us, I think, but... I don't want to just leave it off exactly there. Because that's not where we we know more happens. (laughs) It does make sense to me that fear is part of it. But it also makes sense that that fear begins to bring about great joy as well. Some things begin to become clear, no doubt. But most importantly, if you know Matthew, you know what happened as the women fled from the tomb. Matthew 28, verse 9 says it. It says the women were running. They were fearful, Matthew says, but they also had great joy, he writes. And you know Matthew 28, verse 9. Here are the women running. And behold, Jesus met them. And said, Greetings. Greetings. And Matthew says they they came up and took hold of his feet. You have to picture that. They're, They're on the ground, obviously, taking hold of his feet and they worshiped him. These women who loved him, they were the first eyewitnesses. Now they will do as the angels told them to do, as Jesus tells them to do according to Matthew. Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. The resurrection is established by these three lines of testimony. The empty tomb, the angels, and the eyewitnesses. It's the most important event in the life of Christ. It's the most important event in the history of the world. And it's the most important event in your life and mine, brothers and sisters. And on this day of resurrection, I don't know where you find yourself in response, whether it's with the women in astonishment, bewilderment, some kind of fear. Or if it's with a sense of the confidence that we read earlier in Paul, and next week we'll consider more of the implications of the resurrection, but this morning, as I end, let me just quote for you another reference from the Apostle Paul, this one from Romans 4, just as a bit of a prelude to next week. Because I said earlier that without the resurrection, the cross would mean nothing. While at the same time, because of the resurrection, the cross means everything. And that's all to say that the cross and the resurrection go together together. Right. And it will take the women and the disciples time to sort that out. That's why Jesus is with them for 40 days. But just listen to how Paul says in Romans 4, verse 25, the very end of the chapter, where Paul concludes by writing about Jesus, quote, who was delivered up for our trespasses. That's the cross. Jesus was handed over for execution because of our trespasses. Jesus died for our sins. Paul says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, but look how it ends, and raised for our justification. You see, the cross and the resurrection go together. Jesus could die for our trespasses, But what good would it have done if he hadn't been raised? Well, the answer is none at all. The only way we can be in the right before God is because Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Which is why then Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll consider from Romans six, more about what that means in our lives. But for today, I think it's enough that we see and we hear the testimonies of the gospel account and take them in as best we can. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.